This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Alley. Our guest this week is House Agriculture Chairman Mike Conaway. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Global sugar subsidies are increasing at a threat to 142,000 sugar industry jobs in the U.S. Learn more about the American Sugar Alliance Zero for Zero Sugar Policy at SugarAlliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Chairman Mike Conaway next. Sugar subsidies in 120 countries are on the rise and threatening 142,000 U.S. jobs. That's why the American Sugar Alliance is pushing for a global subsidy ceasefire. Their goal is a subsidy-free world market that fosters efficiency. They know that unilateral disarmament of America's no-cost policy without concessions from abroad will only outsource U.S. jobs and reward foreign subsidizers. The plan is called the Zero for Zero Sugar Policy. And you can learn more at SugarAlliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The House Agriculture Committee has held numerous hearings and listening sessions in preparation for crafting a new farm bill. But that policy is taking a back seat to comprehensive tax reform. Texas Republican and Committee Chair Mike Conaway says agriculture has much to gain in this tax debate. You look at the death tax, uh, it does go away. You know, I'd rather go away in year one, but it goes away in year seven, doubling the exclusion uh, in the meantime. Uh, alternative minimum tax goes away. Uh, on the business side, immediate deductions for uh, uh, for things that folks would have been buying and had otherwise had to depreciate over some period of time. And I know that's a timing issue, but but uh, timing is uh, is uh, of the essence in terms of you know uh, moving those uh, forward. So I think that uh, that, uh, that they gain. Uh, there will always be um, you know someone who who has used an inordinate number of deductions or something that that's uh, not is not better off, but. The vast majority of folks, I think, will be better off by these lower rates, uh, certainly over time. And the economy is going to grow as a result of this. And that means that, that uh, as the economy grows, folks uh, you know, buy better and more high-quality food than they might have otherwise been buying. So I believe that uh, production agriculture stands to, to gain to certainly more than it does to lose. Democratic Whip Steny Hoyer citing a new CBO analysis that PAYGO rules would force spending cuts to pay for the reform, and that could threaten farm programs. What does it take to beat PAYGO? Well, the CBO is correct, but uh, the problem is that there's not enough money to be cut to cover that PAYGO uh, nut that they're talking about. Plus, it's a $25 billion hit to Medicare, and uh, I, I certainly believe that uh, the Congress will vote to not let that happen. Do we really need tax reform right now from a country? I mean, the Fed's unwinding QE3, the economy's growing, and some say it would lessen the tools that we might have in case we hit another recession. Is the timing right? I believe so. It's 30 years, 31 years now since we've done this. The, I think the, the the imperative to do tax reform is there. This code is stunningly complex, way more complex than it should be. We spend way too much money just on compliance. And so if nothing else, uh, you know, spending those dollars that would otherwise be spent on compliance uh, back in your own family or uh, in a productive way for your business is, uh, is going to be good for the economy. I think, you know, history has shown that when we uh, reduce taxes, particularly the corporate rate, that uh, we'll see uh, a, a big improvement in uh, in uh, corporate activities with uh, either new investments back into uh, our country or higher wages for folks to uh, uh, to to, uh, to take a benefit from new jobs being created. So I I think now is is the time. It's uh, it's evident that uh, 
that it's a burden. Quite frankly, it's it's a, uh, it's a real tribute to the American economy that she continues to grow in the spite in spite of a, a overwhelmingly burdensome tax code and uh, eight years of increased uh, overreaching with the regulatory agencies. Uh, just try to stymie uh, the growth that uh, the economy can continue to grow in the face of that. We're working both of those sides, as you know, uh, reducing regulations as well as uh, trying to get this tax cut done. So I think the, uh, the answer is yes, now is the right time. Is the repatriation a part of this that could bring some funds back into the U.S.? And some had mentioned those as a source for infrastructure investment. You, you hate to earmark things like that, but uh, absolutely. The $2.5 trillion or so, and uh, it's a monster number to have an oh-so attached to it, but $2.5 trillion of uh, earnings that are hung up overseas uh, would come back at a much reduced uh, one-time toll charge, and that would generate uh, new revenue to the system that uh, could, in fact, be dedicated to the infrastructure program. And that's one of the ones I've, I've talked to other folks about, that that's a possibility of how you, you wind up paying for it because, uh, you know, the infrastructure program is going to be important, but... Uh, you know, borrowing it for future generations of Americans is maybe not the best idea. So it could certainly be used in that regard. And then, of course, new uh, earnings overseas would uh, be coming home without that tax cho- charge. The companies would be reinvested in their own local uh, manufacturing facilities or creating, uh, you know, new shops and, and growing their business, expanding, uh, paying higher wages, uh, or just paying dividends. Uh, those monies would then go back into the economy either uh, directly through uh, folks who are getting those dividends to, uh, to to spend or they're going back into their dividend reinvestment programs that are in their IRAs and, and 401K plans. So uh, all good as far as I can tell in terms of uh, that money coming home. Mr. Chairman, recently I think you and Ranking Member Peterson held a meeting with some agriculture leaders in Washington, and there have been 170 agriculture groups and companies saying stop the threat to the administration from withdrawing from NAFTA. Tom Slate with the U.S. Grains Council uh, suggested that Mexico has labeled us as an unreliable supplier. How do you evaluate the rhetoric, and is it rhetoric? Well, I, you know, the president is responsible for uh, these trade negotiations, and uh, he is a master negotiator. I mean, by every account, he does know how to negotiate. So I would never presume to to, uh, to tell him to do that. I just know that that NAFTA has been good for production agriculture. Uh, and if it went away, it would be disruptive to production agriculture. It would create uh, problems that we currently don't have. And so uh, getting this thing renewed, renegotiated uh, quickly is uh, is what everybody wants to do. And how the president makes that happen, uh, he's in a much better position to be able to, to evaluate that. I do know that, that uh, the uncertainty of not having it uh, either in or out or renegotiated is, uh, does cause problems. It causes anxieties. Uh, you cited one that the Mexicans have uh, have talked about, but uh, at the end of the day, I think our president's going to, to get this thing done, and, and however he does it, on the backside of it, we'll be happy with it and, and, uh, and be able to move forward. But in the meantime, uh, obviously, production agriculture has an awful lot to lose, uh, given the uh, the strength of our uh, relationships with Canada and Mexico, the existing uh, supply chains of uh, things that we grow here and produce in America headed north and south. Uh, is a part of the uh, part of the business. So, uh, agriculture has done a good job, I think, of continuing to voice that issue. We had the the roundtable briefing with uh, bipartisan members of the committee, and and all of our witnesses that day were um, uh, decidedly blunt as to what they believe needed to happen, and and uh, that they want it done, uh, and they don't want uh, they don't want to withdraw from it. They want this thing renegotiated. So, uh, we'll see how it moves forward. But uh, I've, I've got uh, confidence that the president understands the, uh, the, the circumstances, and uh, but at the same time, token, 
uh, you know, he is a master negotiator, and, and uh, we'll have to see what he does. Secretary Purdue mentioned the development of a contingency plan for the scenario that the U.S. would withdraw from NAFTA. In Kansas City, I spoke to him about that. He said it wasn't necessarily his intention, but then he followed that and said he was like a Boy Scout and wanted to be prepared for any circumstance that might come up. How do you read that contingency plan quote? I think he's just uh, doing the best job he can with his folks to say what would happen if we did, trying to anticipate what that might do and then see if there are things that we could do to mitigate that. But given the scope of production agriculture's relationship with, with Canada and Mexico and those markets and the value of the products who are north and south, I have no idea what we would be able to come up with. It would you know, try to tide folks over uh, in the meantime. But I, I applaud the Secretary for uh, wanting to uh, anticipate as best he could, can uh, what uh, what those impacts might be, and, and then communicate that to the White House, uh, so that they're fully aware of what uh, USDA thinks the impact would be of a withdrawal or whatever might be going on. But that's that's his job. He's trying to to look as far in the future as he can to see what's going on, anticipating it. Uh, whether or not he has any kind of tools that would would come to bear is also something he's evaluating. So I, I applaud the secretary's work in trying to uh, understand what the implications are of, a, of withdrawal. If 100% is signed and done, how far are we into the work on a new farm bill? Uh, great question, Jeff. Um, you know, we've got most all of the groundwork laid. We've done over 111 hearings. We've done 18, I think, on the SNAP. You know, we've gone through the farm bill with a, with a hearing schedule that's been pretty extensive. And uh, we did six listening sessions around the country. And so and for the from a prep standpoint, uh, we're getting there. We're uh, soliciting uh, final comments from our colleagues. I want to ask my uh, colleagues across the uh, uh, the, the uh, house to try to get whatever ideas they've got uh, into us by, say, November the thirtieth, and, uh, and and start to move forward. So, given that I don't have any kind of clue as to you know how hard it's going to be to get from point A to from where we are right now uh, through the you know across the floor, uh, the Senate gets theirs done. And then, uh, you know, get the conference thing worked out and get it passed. I don't have a real good time frame, so I can't really give you a percentage. But in terms of getting ready, we've got that part done, and now we're going to start the, uh, the, the difficult process of actually putting pen to paper, uh, writing these new, uh, new program, you know, flush, you know, doing the new, uh, doing the new farm bill with the idea of, of uh, trying to get it done in the first quarter across the House floor. Then are there already sections of the farm bill that have been written and scored inside your committee? Yes, we have been doing uh, things to get back and forth with uh, CBO to try to score you know, certain ideas. Uh, while the healthcare thing was going on, we were way far down in the pecking order in terms of getting things back from CBO, but uh, now they're being much more responsive. And so, uh, yes, we are, we are uh, uh, you know, there are no full titles done or anything like that, but you have various, various concepts are, uh, have been uh, over at CBO. We've got some back, and we're waiting on others. The Chicago Fed offering some information recently on the farm economy that uh, debt increasing and challenges with debt service. Does that create an urgency to get this bill done? And what of the idea of the need for more funds for FSA guaranteed loans? Well, obviously, yes to the first and absolutely to the second. Whether or not there's new funds available anywhere within the farm bill is, uh, is obviously going to be too, uh, to be determined. But uh, I, I think the four years of of uh, you know 50% drop in net farm income across the the, the circumstances, uh, pretty dramatic. The worst drop since the uh, since the depression. That uh, we are now at a point where 
if folks uh, didn't have reserves to to rely on, then they are leveraged up big time, is what you know, as the Fed said. And even those folks who do have reserves are beginning to dip into them to a point that I've got to be making them and their bankers, uh, you know, really concerned and nervous. So uh, I hope that the combination of just four years of this, as well as you know the the, the new immediate snapshot kind of things that show uh, debt increasing and that kind of thing, is uh, uh, that we can use that to uh, to try to. Uh, convince my colleagues that uh, 218 of us need to vote for this thing, and then we get 60 in the Senate and the president sign it. But uh, the real urgency is the, that 50% of America who is living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, you can love the farm bill, Jeff, or you can hate the farm bill, but that combination of the production agriculture, sweat equity, hard work, and risk-taking, and, yes, a safety net that keeps them in the fight, delivers to the American consumer at the grocery store and in the restaurant the safest, most abundant, and affordable, emphasis on affordable, food and fiber supply of any developed nation in the world. So those paycheck-to-paycheck folks, they need to be communicating to their member of Congress that they need to do to get this thing done so that we can, in fact, maintain that uh, that low cost of food that, uh, that they benefit from every time they go to the grocery store. Two weeks ago, uh, Senator Ernst of Iowa said she was not in favor. Uh, last week, Senator Heitkamp said she was in favor. Uh, that of a plan of your ranking member Peterson to get more acres into the CRP. In fact, he said he could do it without spending more money. How do you see an expanded CRP? Well, we're going to be looking at the entire uh, Title II of the conservation program, and uh, Lucas started last time some combining of programs and, and trying to you know, better focus those, and so we'll be taking a look at at, uh, at all kinds of things within uh, within Title II to, to see if there are ways we can make sure that that the tension between acreage that should not really be in production uh, versus uh, you know new and beginning farmers' opportunity to find places where they can can farm and all those kind of things uh, the the tension between rental rates and and what you can make growing on the farm all that stuff will be in the, uh, in conversations with uh, with Mr. Peterson on the on the title too. What do you think about shifting the revenue plan uh, the Art County revenue plan to RMA data as opposed to NAS? Is that up for debate or is that uh, a real possibility? Well, no, I don't know how we get it done, but we're going to do something that that that, uh, that fixes that uh, difference between uh, county payments that don't make any sense. That's the big thing. It doesn't matter what part of the country, and we've got it out in our part of the country as well as Iowa and other places where you've got either the farmer who's got two different farms in two different counties, and he's getting you know drastically different uh, coverages. We've, we're going to address that, and, and I do think it's a data issue that uh, that we'll address as part of the, the fine tuning on our county payment, county program. In the 14 bill, farmers had to choose between a revenue program and a price program. And given the five-year Olympic average of revenue, it makes me wonder now how much more difficult that's going to be when this final rule is written. How do you balance revenue and price as you're looking at ultimately building the safety net for these bulk commodities? Yeah, well, as they did in 14, uh, all sides weighed in to try to do it. They had a backed round of of having uh, prices go up. Uh, and being pretty good in 14, and then they, they couched their decisions based on that. We've now had four years of dramatically lower commodity prices, and so that will fold into the conversation we have with uh, colleagues across the spectrum as to how we uh, balance out uh, both of those programs. So everybody will have a little different perspective uh, for the 18 Farm Bill than they did for the 14 Farm Bill. And, and unlike in 18, 14, where we were creating out of whole cloth, uh, this would be more about fine-tuning as well as our producers will have had uh, Two be four years of uh, of living with those two programs, so we'll we'll see where we go from there. But it, I think, it'll have a different conversation, and and 
and because the circumstances are so dramatically different than what they were when those programs were first put in place. How have you addressed the challenges with cotton and dairy from a preparation standpoint, and then ultimately when the committee comes together to write the title, how do you resolve cotton and dairy? Well, uh, we resolve cotton by getting it back under Title I, and we resolve the dairy program by, by working the margin protection program to improve it so that it works the way that uh, we that I think uh, the folks who you know, 14 thought it was going to work. Um, if there's something we can do between now and, and uh, uh, the end of the year, that would be helpful because uh, certainly with respect to cotton and dairy, the th- things that we would fix in the 18 Farm Bill will not, uh, not impact the farmers until, I think, October of 2020. And so uh, there, there's a two-step process. We need to, to fix whatever we're going to fix in the Farm Bill, but, but certainly the cotton producers uh, need help now. And uh, whether it's the Gen Share program or something we can do legislatively somewhere else, uh, in, the, in between now and the and the fourteen and the eighteen farm bill kicking in, uh, we're exploring every uh, every opportunity for that. I noted your comments a few weeks ago that no one asked for less money in the farm bill, and that's <laughs> a that's that's a, a plain and bold and true statement. But there are calls now for this FMD vaccine bank, and it will cost money. Is it one of those that we can't afford not to do, or is it still being evaluated? In the the need for it, the specter of an outbreak that's uh, that's uncontrolled because we can't vaccinate the surrounding her all those things that are that are there it's it's pretty clear uh, and we all have to have some hard conversations with industry as to where we come up with that money and how we do it but uh, I, I think uh, the 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 reasons why it needs to be in place are, are clear no one argues that we shouldn't try to prepare for something like that some questions about whether we need all 23 strains at one time and all those kind of mechanics you know it's against the law to have that. Uh, the development of the vaccine, I think, done here in the side of the United States. There are a lot of questions about that, but uh, Jim, I have not had one person say, "Nah, don't don't mess with that. It's uh, it's unneeded." So, when you have something that's uh, clear like that, that we work real hard to try to find a solution. You come from a state that's big in oil and big in agriculture, and there have certainly been some fireworks on the Senate side uh, with regard to the volume obligations under the RFS. How do you evaluate that, and how do you respond to Mr. Cruz calling for answers for the RENS program? Well, the whole mandate, which is where the, the driver for this comes from, is, uh, I think, shown now to be uh, unworkable. We're not going to get to 36 billion gallons of ethanol. Uh, cellulosic ethanol is not going to be coming into the market, and so we're going to have to do something with that. I floated the idea with uh, some of my colleagues uh, that, that uh, you know, it, it eliminating the program altogether is unfair to uh, the folks who invested in in uh, ethanol refineries uh, based on a federal program that they were thought they you know, invested in with good faith, thought was going to be there for the uh, for the long term, and expected to be able to recoup their long term investments uh, over the life of that program. Uh, in respect to the folks who want to do away with it altogether, what I would what I would suggest is that we cap the mandate where it is. Uh, that way, the the ethanol uh, investments, the ethanol market would stay where it's at. Uh, any new uh, ethanol production, any new refineries, we based on market signals that uh, that it is it is in fact the best oxygenate that's out there, and that kind of the wisdom of Solomon uh, respects the investments that were incentivized by a federal policy that uh, that folks just a lot of folks disagree with, and uh, then the folks who want to do with it all together. You know, on a going forward basis, it would be market based. So, something along those lines. That's not in our purview on the farm bill, but uh, I do understand that a lot of anxiety out there, and I think there's a way forward that that uh, does respect those investments that were made, but by the same token, resets that 
issue back into a more market-based uh, environment than uh, than what the sticking with that 36 billion gallon mandate would do. Mr. Chairman, we want to thank you for spending time with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and you get the last word. Well, uh, again, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, uh, our focus will be on what the Farm Bill does to the cost of food. Uh, we're not going to be interested in raising the cost of food for those uh, folks out there that are living paycheck to paycheck. If you think about that mom running that family budget, if her uh, uh, you know her rent, the house payment rent doesn't change, her car payment doesn't change, if she's got to come up with new money during the month for something unexpected, it typically just comes out of her food budget. And I, for one, am not going to be interested in raising or making her problem problem any or her, her uh, walk any more difficult uh, by raising the cost of food arbitrarily because we've got some folks who uh, who want to do away with farm programs that have proven to provide the most affordable uh, food supply of any developed nation in the world in, in, uh, in, in combination with producers. And so uh, this thing works and we want to fine tune it. We want to make it better. And we, we, want, we want to be respectful to the taxpayers, but at the same time, I want to protect those, uh, those families out there living paycheck to paycheck from some artificial increase in food that's uh, unnecessary. Our thanks to House Agriculture Chair Mike Conaway, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Global sugar subsidies are increasing at a threat to 142,000 sugar industry jobs in the U.S. Learn more about the American Sugar Alliance Zero for Zero Sugar Policy at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.